Progressive Rugby League. G'day, John O'Duncan back with you. A quirk of the age of infinite, endless communication is the speed at which words or phrases can go from informative or descriptive to almost meaningless through overuse. No one's fault, of course, but through technology, we're in each other's pockets literally all the time. So even the most apt expression can blow up and then lose impact within a relative flash. And before you know it, the term is washing over us without much thought as to why we use it in the first place. I wonder if the term inclusion is at risk of being one such example in rugby league land. I know the relative inclusivity of rugby league as a sport, as a movement, is something we're all proud of, but after a while it becomes too easy to robotically utter the words rugby league inclusive sport without thinking too much about how we got to that point, if it's still true, and what we can do to ensure it is the case long into the future. Today I want to explore this terrain by reflecting on one incredible, incomparable rugby league life, a life that we fans often use as a shining beacon to wave around and boast about. In fact, this very podcast referenced this very life in our very first episode when putting Rugby League's case forward as a sport with progressive, inclusive cred. The first high-profile Australian sportsperson and first rugby footballer in the world to publicly come out as gay was a rugby league player. Makes us feel good to say that, but such a sentence belies in its simplicity the long and winding road it took to get there. And as much as we rugby league fans like to bask in the reflected glow of this significant moment in history, perhaps we should also spend some more time thinking about how it all came to be. Time has a habit of smoothing away history's rough edges, but it shouldn't let us forget the rough edges existed. And so, we should be proud that it was a rugby league player that was the first high-profile Australian sportsman and first rugby player in the world to publicly come out as gay all the way back in 1995. But we shouldn't forget the struggle, the strength and the bravery of the man who lived it. That man, who's still alive incidentally, sounds like I'm prepping an obituary here, is of course Ian Roberts. I'm so pleased Ian's agreed to join our little podcast because it's high time we reacquainted ourselves with this remarkable, eventful, inspiring life. What was it like to simultaneously be at the centre and on the fringes of rugby league culture? How do you stare down, fight back against and ultimately rise above torrents of abuse to take a giant leap for yourself and for your sport? And how do you do it all while playing the most confrontational code there is on some of the biggest stages imaginable in some of the best teams of all time? It's a real privilege to welcome South Sydney Rabbitoh, Manly Warringah Sea Eagle, North Queensland Cowboy, New South Wales Blue and Australian Kangaroo and much, much more, Ian Roberts to the show. Ian, welcome to the Progressive Rugby League Podcast. That is quite the intro, John. I don't know how I live up to that. That's very flattering. Thank you very much. It's very, very flattering. Thank you. It's so it's so good to have you on, Ian. A, a real pleasure to have you on the show. And I guess the idea to ask you on to the show came to me as I was watching the news a few weeks ago. Uh, there was a story in the Mardi Gras, and they mentioned a group called the 78ers leading the Mardi Gras parade, which, which is a tradition, as you'd know. Now, if you're not engaged with the history of the Mardi Gras, then you're probably oblivious to why the 78ers lead the Mardi Gras. It's not just because they were there in 1978. It's because they endured violence from police and others, and many were arrested that night. So that violence was also symbolic of the violence of the wider LGBT community that they were regularly subjected to. So it's it's important to revisit that history every so often so it doesn't wash over us. And in a similar vein, it got me thinking that it's important to revisit your experience, Ian, so we don't get the false sense that any kind of positive social change comes easy. Like I said in the intro, time has the habit of, you know, taking the rough edges off history when you're not looking. So when you look back, 
it can all seem to have happened so easily. Yada, yada, yada. And Ian Roberts came out and everyone was cool with it. Not that simple, obviously. So we'll get to um, your experiences over your lifetime as we go. But first, I guess the, the main reference I used to research this chat was the 1997 biography of your life by Paul Freeman called Finding Out. You know, absolutely compelling read. And we'll go over that part of your life in great detail throughout the show. But as I was thinking of some questions for our chat, I realized I feel like I know the 32-year-old Ian quite well through the book. That was the age when the book was uh, published. But I really have no idea if that's still an accurate reflection of the man you are today. Times change, the world changes, people evolve over time. So I thought I'd start off with a simple but perhaps tricky question. Who is Ian Roberts? How would you do I knew you were going to say that. I've been dreading it. Well, I was just going to say, how would you describe yourself to someone you might meet in 2021 who is totally oblivious to your story? Uh, that's such a curly question, Jono. Like, you, you spoke about the 70s before, and I'd like it's kind of nice that you acknowledge them and, and, and when talk about my story because I, I remember, like, you know, I was like 13, 14 at the time, and I remember that protest. And that's, that's what I think people have to remember. The original Mardi Gras was a protest, it turned into a celebration. But I was well aware of that protest, so I'm glad you acknowledged them, mate. Mm. As for myself, uh, you know, so things roll on, mate. I, you know, like when I originally came out in, in 94, that was, if the truth be told, that was the worst kept secret. I have said this before. Mm. You know, it was the worst kept secret in rugby league that I was gay. Mm. I mean, the media here in Australia were very respectful to me, and I have spoken to, to a lot of reporters since coming out, and all of them pre me coming out. Like, when we spoke about those moments, they all basically said that that was a question that they all wanted to ask me, but out of respect, they were waiting for me to do it myself. Sure. Or, I mean, when I was at South, I mean, I, it was well known then that I used to freak on Oxford Street a lot, and, you know, I wasn't even closeted when I was at South. I always had my then boyfriend was always particularly the last couple of years in uh, 88, 89 was always around then when I went to Manly I mean the funny thing when, when I went from uh, South to Manly I left South in 89 to join Manly in 1990 uh, I had made my mind that I was going to come out publicly just like I said it was a worst kept secret yeah. and I just I just wanted to be done with it but at that same time I don't know if you know this Justin Fashionew who was a, an English Premier player came out there was no internet back then and so everything that you heard about the story was either through the papers or through radio announcements the English press were, were savage to him. They right. brutalised him. The English public were terrible to him. And he copped a really bad time. And, and in fact, in 1998, Justin took his own life. Wow. Um, so, I mean, and I, I remember reading that and, and then seeing the way that was being handled and the consequences of, of what Justin did. I, when I went to a man in 1999, I was like, no, nah, I'm not ready for that. I'm like, I'm so not ready for that. Yeah. But, you know, but the crazy thing was, even when I was at Manly, my then partner, Shane, He's a bit of a funny story, mate. You know the mascot? Remember the mascot, Eagle the Eagle? That, that was my partner, Shane, and everyone knew that was my partner, <laughs> Shane. That, you know what I mean? Like, it was... So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how I would explain what... For me, when I came out, it was just for my own sense of self, really. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how people view my story as either being tragic or inspirational, but I can promise you, Jono, mm. there are so many stories out there that are a thousand times more inspirational and yeah. a thousand times more tragic. Yeah. You know, like, I didn't think it was going to open the floodgates, put it like that, but I did yeah. think maybe there might be a trickle of players. But, you know, that, that didn't happen. And that's, I mean, Keegan Hurst, who was over in the Super League over in the UK, he's a, a rugby league guy who played for... Uh, right, that league. Yeah. yeah, very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keegan's just retired. There had been a few individuals sure. who have come out in, within male contact sport, but not many, not yeah. many. We'll sort of step through those parts of your life and your career in a bit more detail as we go. But I guess just reading the book, I'm just interested to know how you reflect on that book. It's 24 years ago now. Do you 
consider it an important part of your life? I've got to say, the book was kind of like, um, I refer to it as being like almost a pastel coloured edition of what my life was like. There were a few things, not a few, there were quite a number of things left out because we thought that those situations might be too unbelievable or too confronting for a lot of people to hear. Everything in the book was real. There was a lot of stuff left out that um, I didn't really go into detail about how my family life at home with my family, my parents and that, yeah. how deteriorated and how yeah, destructive that became. Right. We kind of got, not glossed over, we didn't really highlight but, but when I was initially asked to do the book, I was almost a bit sceptical because I didn't think a book like that would be of any interest. Mm. But yeah, but yeah, right, that's interesting. Yeah, I um, mentioned about my family life, and that was you know, like anyone within the LGBTIQ plus community. Coming out to your family is you know, nine times out of ten is, is the most difficult process. Yeah. And I think anyone who's, who's ever once you come out once, you, you keep coming out for the rest of your life as well. That's the other thing that people right. don't understand, which kind of great. I mean, I, I got to be honest, John, I forget that I'm gay now. I mean, that sounds like a stupid thing to say. Yeah, yeah. But because I've been out of that, that spotlight, like it was twenty years ago or twenty five mm. years ago, my profile is is way down on the, on the recognisable scale. I, but people remind me that I'm gay if I'm holding my partner's hand. Like I'll see someone look at them, they'll look down at your holding hand. You're like, oh shit, yeah, okay. It's still not. It's much more acceptable now than it was 25 years ago. But it's still a thing that a lot of people do notice. So you, yeah. you get what I mean by that. Yeah. It's almost like, and so that's that's always fascinating to me. This is like, oh shit, yeah, this is still. Yeah, you know, I can't forget that. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, and look, I'd like to interrogate that sort of stuff um, throughout the chat. But before we get there, obviously, 24 years since the book. You, like many of us, have been down a few different career paths since rugby league, one of which was acting. I'm curious to understand the transition from professional sportsman to acting because they're obviously pretty different vocations, I guess both quite regimented in their way. But with rugby league, your year is largely mapped out from the beginning, always a game, a training session, a recovery session on the horizon. But with acting, there can be a lot of downtime between jobs. You don't know if you'll be on the plane interstate tomorrow for a shoot or whether you'll be on the couch for the next few months. Were you ready for that adjustment? Sports is a form of theatre anyway, mate, really. I mean, I, I was always part of the ensemble when I was going up to school. I kind of fell into acting after footy, not fell into it. I mean, I, I had always had an interest in acting. So to me, it wasn't any surprise. It was to other people that I got involved yeah. in theatre. But I, <laughs> the truth be told, John, if I had to survive on my acting chops, I'd go pretty hungry, mate, let me tell you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's also part of the game as well. You know, I mean, we can't. A lot of waiting around. Yeah, we can't all be Hugo Weavings, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's all part of the game too. But I will say, I mean, like I, I mean, I'm 55, John, and I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up. Acting is, you know, it, it is still very much a passion. I still love it. Like when I get to work, it takes priority over anything else I'm doing. Yeah. Um, and I, I run a, it's funny you speak about the word inclusion in the intro. I, I, actually, <laughs> I feel funny saying this. Now. I run an inclusion program out of the NRL. Yeah. I'm part of it. I'm part of an inclusion program. But yeah, so acting always, is my priority if I get a job of preparation for an audition that, that, yep. that always has preference over anything else I'm doing at the time because it, it is still something I'm really passionate about and in fact I would say like acting is one of those things it kind of saved me after I retired because yeah. when I finished playing footy it's a funny it's a strange world to have to, to try and explain this but you go from being in this place of and I'm not saying it's always nice when people recognise you. I mean, everyone's got an ego, John. Like it's mm. always pleasant when people come up and are friendly to you, and, and you kind of become like kind of become just the way things are. Like that, that becomes your way of life. People recognise you and blah blah blah. But, well, after 18 months, 24 months out of the game, that all fades away, and you have all this free time, and it's just like can, I can understand how people fall through the cracks. Yeah, they become other issues in their lives, like serious issues 
But I mean, with me, I suppose I was kind of lucky because it was just by chance. I quite literally, I mean, I've said this story before, I got literally my car broke down about 200 metres up the road from where NIDA is, and now they're parade in Kensington in Sydney, and yeah. NIDA is the National Institute of Dramatic Arts. Yeah. I was walking by NIDA to go to the service station to see if there was someone who could help me tow my car, and I just thought as I was walking by NIDA, I'll just pop in there, see if there's someone maybe... I was interested in getting back into sort of one-on-one classes yeah. type thing. That's kind of where it, how it all fell into place. I met yeah. a bloke by the name of Kevin Jackson, who's a wonderful man, a bit of a mentor for me. He uh, kind of took me under his wing. I was training with Kevin for about 12 months, and he suggested I just go through the auditions to uh, to do the course, the, the acting course, the three-year course, and I thought I was too old. I was mm. about 36, 37 around that time. Uh, he's like, no, if, you know, don't let age bother you. If you're good enough, you're old enough, regardless. Yeah. So I was kind of lucky that I fell back into a profession that, that I still had a lot of passion, like I did with rugby league. I still had yeah. a lot of passion for it, and it was a real way of life. Like yeah. it, within itself, it was a way of life, and, and there certain levels of commitment that um, wasn't just a nine to five thing. Sure. Okay, Ian, let's talk about rugby league. So your relationship with the game of rugby league in your early playing days and throughout your school days, I guess that period, maybe 10 to 17, 18, because it seems you kind of got into the game more through happenstance rather than through a burning desire to scale the rugby league heights. So what was the role of rugby league in your life growing up in that period? I mean, I'm English. My parents... uh I have an older brother, older sister, and a younger sister. Mm. The younger sister is Australian. We came out here. I think I was like 18 months old, so we, we're the older. I don't know if you heard the term 10-pound poms. Oh, yeah. My family are very working class. Look, mum and dad literally turned up here with three kids under their wing and about 30 pounds in their pocket. You know yeah. what I mean? So me, me playing rugby league was just almost like this form of babysitting for my mum and dad. It gave them a bit of a break. It's just like... And I'm now talking, growing up in the 70s, yeah. uh, I grew up in housing commission. It was just a, you know, a mob of kids out in the street doing whatever they did. I, I went off and started playing rugby league because my next door neighbours were playing rugby league. Mm. And that's kind of how, I mean, we just played rugby league or you played netball. If you're a girl, you played netball or you played rugby league. Yeah. So it was almost, that. that's kind of just, it's just what I did. I don't, it's not so much that I loved rugby league, it's just whatever everyone else was doing as well. When I was about 16, 17, I, I wanted to walk away from rugby league, but that's when I, I knew there was a real conflict with my sexuality. Mm. My dad's the one that were like, my dad didn't know I was gay and he didn't understand the reasons I wanted to give it away, but he thought I was, I was missing a really, like an opportunity because at that point I'd shown a lot of potential and he thought there was a, a path for me career-wise yeah. playing for rugby league. So I kind of stuck it out for another year and things kind of took off for me. Then. I got graded with South and, and yeah. blah, blah, blah. So that's very interesting because, look, I don't want to play pop psychologist here, so please stop me if, if I'm heading down that path, but my impression from the book was that that you essentially used rugby league as a tool to help you kind of fit in and perhaps to help hide a part of you that you were worried was going to be problematic for you and your family, almost as if you saw it as a diversion tactic. Hey, everyone, look over here. I'm a match-winning footy player. And that that would be the focus of attention on you. And, you know, from what I read, it seemed to kind of work in that sense. Yeah, that's pretty spot on. It was always a, a distraction from other issues. But like I said, at about 17, 18, I knew this other issue about my... I mean, I was... Let me just say, John, if I sounded like I was uncomfortable as a teenager knowing that I was same-sex attracted, I wasn't. I was... Ever since I can yeah. remember, I've always been okay with it, but I've always known other people hadn't been okay. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah, it wasn't until I was about 16, 17, and I thought, oh, this is just never going to gel. You know, I was working in that stage. I just had an apprenticeship as an electrician. I thought, that's a bit of a pathway out of it. Mm. Not out of it, but just out of the conflict, out of the... Because I didn't think those two worlds could gel. Yeah, but I was very wrong. I was very, very wrong. Yeah. 
And Ian, you debuted at the age of 21 for South Sydney after coming through the juniors in the South District. Now, you've been in and around inner Sydney, Redfern, Maroubra, Mascot, Botany for a lot of your life, and it's changed a lot. What was it like playing for South Sydney in the late 80s? Because it was an interesting time. South hadn't won for a while. They were starved of success, but there seemed to be an optimism in the air as a brilliant crop of youngsters were making their name for themselves and giving long-suffering fans a bit of hope. Can you tell us that feeling in that community during that time? The South Sydney district, an area has always had that perception of being a tough area, and it was. It was a tough area. Like you grow up, I mean, it was, you know, like 80% of it would be housing commission. It was always a tough place to grow up, and I grew up in, around South Coogee in the housing commission there. But I think, I mean, in, in 86, when I first started playing at South, George Biggins was a new coach there. George went there because South couldn't afford to pay a coach, and George was doing it for nothing, I think. George was quite a successful business person, but George, you know, he's got red and green blood flowing through his veins. And Phil Gould, in 86, Gus played for South, that was his final year. That he just come to the club and yeah. Gus kind of coached the team. Gus obviously went on to coach State of Origin, yeah. coach yeah. Benrith, coach Canterbury, all the grand final wins, this and the other. Yeah. Gus is like incredible, incredible articulate with rugby league. So there, there, there was a bit of a feeling that maybe this new bunch of younger players was going to be a bit of a turning point. But I think South always struggled financially. Anytime any of their decent players shows any promise, they get snapped up by Manly, they get snapped up by you know, one of the more financial clubs. But yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, but I mean, I, I remember the first game I played we played the Charity Shield against St George and I was playing against Craig Young who mm. was like a bit of an idol for me and like having this perception in that game not knowing if we could win because I didn't think we were up to it but in, leading up to that week my whole concept about rugby league and, and what rugby league is about changed because Folks like Mario Fennick and Dave Boyle and Les Davis and Craig Coleman, who are like, once again, that red and green royalty, mm. they were so like adamant and so vocal that we, we were going to, we won the game, but they were so adamant <laughs> we were going to win the game. It kind of, like, I kind of saw rugby league in a totally different light for the first time in right. my life. Yeah. Yeah, it was like almost like coming into grade. Coming into grade, there's, there's a step up in pace, there's a step up in ideas and the way that the game's played. It, it's a smarter game. And every every step up from there on, it, there's an increase in speed, there's an increase in impact. It's like you step up from grade to like city country, then then origin, then, then Australia. Like there was a step, there's an incredible increase every time. Yeah, that's that's kind of what like it's not until I got into first grade that I really loved being in first grade. Yeah. I mean, it sounds a bit weird to say, but I was I was just plodding along. Oh yeah, but like South offered me this contract. I was going all right in junior football. They wanted me. I said okay, great. It was and it, like it, that thing about experience and how much experience counts. I totally get what that means. Yeah. It totally does count. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. Now, at the end of the 86 season, your first season, you take up an offer to play for Wigan and you make quite the impression, including in a game against the touring Australian Kangaroos. What was it like heading to the UK as a 21-year-old and playing in front of those crowds? Wigan are like were wonderful. I mean, I so fell in love. I'm, I'm English born, so I yeah. actually got to go over there under their salary. I think you were only allowed three international players, and I didn't come under that banner because mm-hmm. I was English born, which is why I got the invite to play mm-hmm. for Wigan. That, that, that's funny you say that about that game. That's that's one of the only games that, that I uh, have a real clear memory about. It's probably one of the best games I've ever played in my life. Right. Like it's, it's just one of those rare games where everything just kind of fell into place, even though we lost. Yeah. I mean, and anyone that's been over there, particularly in those late late 80s early 90s when they played over in England the crowds there are unbelievable and the difference over there too is is the crowds quite literally like between the touch line and where the seats started or where the crowd starts is probably five yards tops yeah. You know what I mean? So, so the crowd's right on top of you. Because you would have been playing at the old Central Park back then, I Central Park. Yeah. Central Park. It's, it, it was like, it was such a, 
like teams hated coming to Central Park. Yeah. It was such a wonderful experience. Like it was, uh, it was quite unique. That's um, amazing. I pro- and I probably play. With, I'm sure one of your questions is going to be about who was the best player ever played with, <laughs> or something like that. Maybe. That's why I got a chance to play with Eddie Henley then. Wow. And I would say, as an individual, like just he could turn something out of nothing, and just all on his own. Ellie would have been the most like impressive, destructive player, just magnificent. And the centre of gravity when he used to run, like he had such a low centre of gravity, he could run with his legs out beside him almost. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. We'll get to more to England later on when you yep. you travel there as a tourist later on. But back in Australia, and this period of your life, you're obviously young early 20s and social life is pumping and and you discover the dance music scene and, and this seems to have a fairly big impact on your outlook on life well what was it about dance music in that scene that made such an impression on you it had nothing to do with dance music it was the fact that they were gay pops right and, you know, yes i love that subculture of dance music depeche mode is my favorite band always has been yeah but i mean i started going to oxford street when i was like 16 17 yeah. i mean no one checked id back there there were bars there like flows palace exchange patches flows palace was my favorite little bar but i mean i knew from a very like i said earlier i knew from a very early age i was yeah. gay and i was just um yeah, for me it was just, you know, how do you tell someone at 15, 16, so for, like that sense of freedom or whatever that is, mm. you're like, or you don't feel like you're any different there or just like you fit in here, this is my crowd, yeah. uh, this is my community, this is my family. Yeah, it was, it was almost that sense when I, you know, about 16, 17. So I'm, I've been going to Oxford Street for a long time before I, I started playing with South. Hence all the rumours about me being gay. Yeah, yeah. So it was a, kind of a sense of belonging essentially. Yeah, I just... Like I said about community, and um, yeah, I probably wouldn't have used that term back then, but I, I really can relate to what that means now, sense yeah. of community, and yeah. Yeah, right. Now, you know, I'd like to, if I can, start to get into your psyche around this period, the late 80s, I suppose, while you're still at Souths. Like you said, in your mind, you're gay. You've accepted that at an early age, unlike many males who can be in self-denial for decades to the detriment of their own health. So that's a good thing. But at this point of time, while you're comfortable with the reality of your sexuality, you're trying pretty hard to keep that aspect of yourself hidden to the world, including your family, like you said earlier. Can you take us through what's going through your mind at this stage of your life? Because there were rumors, obviously, that you'd be aware of, and you're essentially leading something of a double life. Uh, what was that like for your mental health and how did that manifest on the footy field? You know, I, would, I would say it's not so much I was living a double life. I was, I was kind of a, a bit, uh, I don't know what the term is, I used to call it being pig-headed. I was a bit stubborn in the fact that, mm-hmm. particularly just before I left South in 88, 89, the reason I, I didn't come out publicly because I thought that someone shouldn't have to. I wish now, like looking back now, I wish as a 55-year-old man, Looking back on time, knowing the way things panned out and what would have been more beneficial and probably more powerful, I wish I'd never been in the closet. I wish, just like, from a teenager, I wish I'd just told my parents straight up. My my parents, I mean, my dad passed away about seven years ago, and it was like I butted heads with my dad right up until about probably ten years before he passed away. And, and my mum, like, my mum and I have a wonderful relationship now, mm. and it's all only because. I mean, I'll give, a, I'll give you a situation. Mm. Just a, a few years before the uh, marriage equality stuff, I was sitting at the table with my partner, and my mum was there, and my dad was sitting reading a paper. My partner and I were up seeing, seeing my parents. And my mum and I were talking about something about the marriage equality issue. And my dad put his paper down and just said, why shouldn't you be allowed to marry the person you're in love with? Now, that doesn't sound like much to anyone else. Mm. But that was the moment in my life. This is, I mean, I'm now talking probably about 13, 14, maybe 15 years, that my life changed. It was almost, oh, my God, he gets it. 
Yeah. He actually gets it now. It isn't like he, he understood. It's like he became more of a person because he had a gay son. Mm. Like he got to take those rose-coloured glasses off. You know, so I, it's not so much that I was trying to hide it back in those early days at South. I just, I was a bit stubborn and just thinking, why do I have to make a statement? You know, this is my partner. I'm there with my partner. Surely everyone must know. They're the ones not talking about it. I'm like, you get what I'm saying? It's yeah. almost like that. And then the situation with my mum and dad. My mum used to work at Qantas. It was a lunchtime. It was a lunchtime situation. There was an article about me in the paper. Mm. And the two boys sitting opposite her who didn't know that was Ian Roberts's mother sitting opposite them. I'm, I'm going to use a bit of coarse language here, but I have to say it because it's just... Yeah, go for it. It, 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 it was what was said and just like the impact... <laughs> yeah. So they're reading the papers and one of the boys says to the other paper, not knowing that my mum's sitting opposite him, so that, oh, that Ian Roberts got caught sucking a guy off in the middle of Oxford Street. Mm. Now... I mean, which is like, that's that's how I had to deal with, with coming out to my parents. <laughs> and yeah. I'm just going to say, Johnny, that wasn't a real story. Yeah, I know. That was just, <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, what, what people, yeah. what, a lot of people tend to say a lot of shit about yeah. that. Yeah, but anyway, but I mean, you get the impact. It's like, so I got home from training. My dad wrote me up, said, you've got to come around. Your mother, mother's heard something. I thought I, someone had died or, or mm. something catastrophic had happened. So I sit down, TV's playing. And my dad just said, look, boy, all we want to hear you say is, is that you're not gay and we'll be happy. We hear all those stories of the football, like people shouting stuff out, we just ignore that. Yeah. And I just remember the moment just thinking, no, I've had enough, Dad. Like, no, this is not, no, Dad, I'm gay. Wow. And it was almost like I, it was almost like I drifted off into the TV because I remember becoming part of the TV. Yeah. My mum didn't handle the news very well, and my dad didn't handle the news very well. Yeah. I mean, the, one of the first things my dad said is like, he says, "Yeah, but, but you play rugby league for Australia." It's just it was almost like, whoa. I mean, and, yeah. That, I mean, you get what I'm saying? Yeah. No, it, it goes to a few of the kind of themes that. We're sort of touching on like masculinity and masculinity in rugby league. And... Oh, I hate that word, John. I hate that word. <laughs> okay, no worries. Yeah, when people talk about that word, it's yeah. just like, oh, what is it to be a man? I mean, I just don't get it, John. What is it? I mean, quite literally, what is it to be a man? Well, like, yeah. yeah, I mean, just on that then, I'll, I'll try not to use the word, but I mean, have you ever reflected on, because you came out... And I, I guess from a rugby league community point of view, maybe it was softened a bit by the fact that you were the alpha kind of masculine man, you was as alpha as it got as a rugby league player was concerned, you were the toughest guy around. Do, do you ever wonder if, I don't know, you were a diminutive halfback or winger, what difference that might have made? I don't know. Yeah, it's, I, I get what you're driving at. I don't know. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, mean, I suppose I just challenged a lot of stereotypes. You know? Yeah, I, absolutely. I, but the, the person I was challenged a lot of people's expectations or, or thought process or what they expected gay men to be. It's just like, and particularly a, a gay man who's playing this sport, yeah. who, who's actually standing up, owning the fact that he is gay and he has a partner. And, you know, he's, yeah. yeah. So I mean, I, I mean, I know it's, it's, that was confronting for a lot of people back in the late '80s, early '90s. It's an unfair question. It's a unfair hypothetical really but uh, yeah just an interesting thing that crossed my mind Ian can you sort of take us into the experience of someone that's grappling with coming out to their family and friends obviously in your case there's additional complications of being high profile but in general what are the specific elements that make it so hard is it the big things are the little things like what all is of it? the above yeah. you know, all of the above it's all the expectations you have about yourself it's, like, well, it's the expectations you feel like 
that family members might have of you. Mm. Expectations, expectations, expectations. Yeah. You know, just like, like I was talking about my dad before, at that moment when I realised my dad got it. And even my mum says, like, the fact that she's now able to embrace the situation and mm. she has this gay son, this whole other world has opened up to her. This yeah. whole other, or she's had the, had the blinkers taken off. It's just, like, if she says it all the time, you know, she's so grateful she had a gay, she's so fortunate she had a gay. John, if I'm sounding like I make excuses for myself, I'm not sure. No. I, John, I love the fact that I'm gay. I mean, I love being gay. I'm like, I just, I'm so pleased that I'm yeah. born gay because, <laughs> and what I mean by that is like anyone who's in a minority group and, and has faced any sort of prejudice and, and, and discrimination, to get to the point where you can embrace all those things, mm. and yeah, it's it's really quite empowering, man. Like it, and I guess um, it kind of enforces empathy upon you, really, when you're talking about absolutely, other. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Now, Ian, I might go to your your time at Manly because it's related now. So you decide to join Manly for the 1990 season, and to put it simply, as you kind of alluded to before, Souths just don't have the cash to keep their best players, and you re-signed with Souths a couple of years prior on less money than you could have received elsewhere. But now Manly come through with an offer that reflected your worth and you take it up. So it seems like when you get to Manly on the big money with plenty of media attention that comes with being a big name, it sounded like the abuse really starts to ramp up in those early years at Manly. I'd be curious what the feeling was for you because it seemed like obviously people knew but the rumour mill was going to overdrive, the abuse from the sidelines, it's some opposition players too was increasing but all the while you're still kind of treading that fine line between you know the public and the private Ian Roberts and on top of all that you get into some financial difficulties too from some investments to go haywire so it seemed like everything was compounding and you're in a pretty dangerous spiral so how do you reflect on those first couple of years at Manly from that perspective? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was, um, yeah, everything seemed to be happening so fast. I mean, yeah, when I went to Manly, a lot of, I mean, there were a lot of people that knew I was gay because, mm. you know, like half the people in my life, in my private life, my social life, knew that I was gay because I was out clubbing and, and being like a, a 25-year-old gay man. Oh, it's kind of weird. When I left South, I mean, I left South on the bad circumstances as well. I mean, South mm. sacked me at one stage. And, um, and you came back at the end in 89, didn't you? Yeah, and I, and I wish I'd never come back and played that game because I really I had a groin issue. That game against Balmain in the semis, I really shouldn't have played. I mean, it, it totally set me back, like, almost six months. Yeah. Yeah, I had some major surgery in the off-season. I kind of felt like, and it sounds a bit weird, but, but I did feel at that time, I did feel quite alone. And, I mean, my relationship with my family wasn't good. Yeah, and you're right about the whole situation, the financial situation. I just had a bit of a blowout with the business situation, with the deal that I shouldn't have got involved with. It was my, absolutely my own fault. I, I, I just shouldn't have got involved in, in something I didn't know enough about. Mm. But that's, I mean, that's, um, that's kind of weird. I'd even, I'd even forgotten about that until you said that. Then. Oh, right. I forgot about that. No, 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 no. I don't say that in a bad way. Yeah. Quite nice to be reminded. I, I like, I feel like someone's, oh, yeah, that's right. That, that, that whole situation with, with GC, I call him GC, mm. that, the person, mm-hmm. happened. It's like, oh, my God. Okay, yeah, right. right. But yeah, because I, I was living at Coogee at the time, and even the travelling over to Manly, it kind of felt like I was still holding on to something in the, in the eastern suburbs of yeah. South Sydney area. But I didn't want to move over to Manly mm. because they were always seen as the Silver Tars and mm. the Money Club, and, and because of the whole situation with leaving South, yeah, 
yeah, it was just one of those moments that just like, it just shaped me a bit because I, I did feel quite alone at that time. I just feel quite alone. But the good thing about going to Manly that year was that they just signed Graham Lowe and I'd had Graham Lowe at uh, Wigan mm. and um, he'd had tremendous success there. Yeah. I had a really good friendship with Lowe, which was one of the reasons, which is not often spoken about, was one of the reasons I went to Manly because George Piggins was still the coach at South and, and George just, I, I felt like I probably learnt as much as I could learn from George, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So yeah, you know, that's not often spoken about that, but that was one of the reasons too about going to Manly too, was because Graham Lowe was going to be there. I don't know if that answers yeah, your question, but, no. but I, did, I do remember there was a sense of early 90s was I did feel very much on my own and, and mm. vulnerable. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, throughout this period of your life also, you really threw yourself into charity work and the book takes us through your relationship with a kid who had AIDS called Blake. And the joy you, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the joy you brought to his life in his final months, but that was only part of it. The hospital staff interviewed, you know, for the book, were often reflecting in awe about how much charity work you were doing and how you did so much good. You weren't scared to get your hands dirty at all, but on the flip side, they were worried you were committing yourself too much and leaving yourself emotionally vulnerable when the sick kids, uh, some of them, for example, might unfortunately pass away. So was that all connected with the the loneliness factor? How do you reflect on that and and you're throwing yourself so heavily into that? Mate, um, absolutely, it was all connected to the loneliness side of things, mate. And just like kids don't judge you, mate. You just, uh, yeah. for, the, for the first time you meet children, you might be a football hero or someone's on the TV the first couple of times you meet them. But after that, that, all, that kind of melts away, mate. In the end, yeah. you're just, just a friend. So very much, mate, I, I don't often speak about the, this job because some mm. things you just do because it's the right thing. And, you know, it's one of those rare things. But being someone with a profile and like a football, so a lot of those kids, football players were like superheroes mm. you know, and for them it's just like it's gratifying man like like I said everyone's got an ego it, it is nice when people come up in the streets now and, and say oh g'day Robbo how you going yeah. it's, it's always it's always pleasant it's nice for your ego mate it's always it's not very often I get recognised but it's always <laughs> nice for your ego yeah. same thing like exactly the same thing though back then it was um these kids used to think you were superheroes. I mean, I, I used to spend a lot of time at Ron McDonald House down there at Ramwick and Pinter Wales. I mean, that, that's just something you do. I mean, I, I don't know, mate. Like, it's just, you know, I mean, it's just something I really want to yeah. like, no, talk fair about. Enough. But it's just, it's gratifying, mate. Yeah, it is. Yeah, look, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. And there is a an element of that feels good for you to to do that sort of stuff but but let's not downplay the 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 great joy you you also brought to many many kids lives there so i just wanted to bring that up we don't have to dwell on it you just mentioned blake mate he was yeah. incredible he was such a wonderful kid mate this yeah. poor kid i mean had hiv he had he got the virus through a blood transfusion when yeah. he was first born he was born premature mm. and that poor kid he he was just such a trooper he was so yeah. brave and continued to spend his whole life basically in hospital Mm. Um, in, in some form of, of treatment and he was just such a he just had this incredible like like love of life but he was always sick yeah yeah it's just one of those you, you kind of realise oh my god you know, like I'm so fortunate yeah. I mean I'm so fortunate yeah and it's interesting you, you talk about you know why you sort of threw yourself into it the lack of judgement from kids and you know after a while they're just you're just a mate and I guess it's one thing that it's important to remember as a, a young gay man as you were for your entire childhood and adolescence, homosexuality is illegal in New South Wales. I think it only becomes legal in 1984. And it wasn't uncommon for, for gay kids to be subject to radical treatments such as electroshock therapy. So, yeah, my, my, listen, 
there was a show called Checkerboard. I'm now talking 1972. I, was, I know it was 1972 because it was the first time two men were seen of two men kissing on TV. It was right. on the ABC. 1972, I was seven years old. I can tell you because I, I remember the situation. Sitting there next to my dad watching the TV. These two men kiss, and I instantly recognised that that was like me. Yeah. I, like, I knew that. And my dad, this, I mean, I grew up, I love my parents, but I grew up in a very racist, homophobic family. My dad's were, and I, like, as soon as it's, he said it, it chilled me to the bone. Like, they make my fucking skin creep. Wow. That was such a moment in my life. And like I said, I, like, I know it was checkboard, I know it was 1972, so yeah. I, know it's, I know it's seven years old. Mm. I knew I was at least like that because I, I connected with those two people on the TV, the two men kissing. Yeah. But the weird thing was my, my dad had two gay uncles that, that he loved. Yeah. You know, like it was like, it, anyway, it's just, a, it's, yeah. I mean, everyone's life's complex and nothing's straightforward and <laughs> there's, yeah. layers to, there's layers to everything. Yeah, yeah. Look, and we will get to, to footy, I promise, uh, shortly for all those listeners out there who are uh, tuning in for the footy stuff. But uh, I also just want to focus on... The fact that for many gay men, violence has often been a part of their lives and in many cases they've been the victims of crime in the form of bashings or, or murders. Uh, there's yeah. still some many unsolved crimes in Sydney, for example. And the book relays many violent encounters you experienced, some of which you were set upon, some that escalated after you stood up for yourself or someone else close to you. Most yeah. of us luckily live in a cocoon of non-violence, but many people are not so lucky. Can you give us a sense of what it's like living in a reality where a street fight could be around the corner? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult for the LGBTIQ plus community anyway. It's, it's like what's happening now with women and the virus. Like you make these choices in compromising positions, and I totally understand when women say that, how they make these choices when they're walking down the street. They, they don't make eye contact with mm. men approaching and stuff. All those little things that, you know, they, they carry their keys in their hands. Yeah. Well, I totally get that because I've been in that situation too. I mean, I my situation was probably a little bit different because I could look after myself. Mm. And I, like I said to you before, I, I was I always had a bit of a chip on my shoulder. And I was yeah, I just I used to take things the wrong way. I'm not that person anymore. But mm. I, you know, no one wants to get bashed up. You know, just put that out there. Now. No one goes out looking for it. Like it just, it's still a dangerous world. You know, it's still yeah. a, it's still potentially a dangerous world. We think we come a long way, but uh, you know, you, you're talking about um, there was a situation with me. Uh, the, the, the thing that always springs to mind is when I was at uh, Circular Key once, and I got ping hit from behind. Mm. And it was just like, I first knew about it because a woman was helping me off the ground. But I just remember, like, it was in broad daylight. That's what I remember. Like, this woman helping me up, and she told me what happened, that someone had come up and hit me from the back of the head. But unfortunately, I could, I, I could look after myself, you mm. know what I mean? Like, at least they just didn't hang around and start kicking me. Well, whatever, but, I mean, I, that it's, story is so familiar to me. Yeah, I think it's really important to kind of talk about it. It's something that I'm kind of learning about obviously with what's happening in the world like uh until recently i didn't realize how lucky i was to walk around generally without fear as a sort of uh straight young man but knowing that you know women for instance are often walking alone by themselves not only worried about their safety but also worried about being raped Uh, you know there's there's things that i've never and it's conversations that we're having now you have to have these conversations we have to we have to keep poking the bear you know mm. what I mean but now that we're having the, the people are feeling comfortable to have these types of conversations we've got to keep them going yeah. you know all these things what's happening in parliament at the moment mm. just like no let's let's just keep this going now let's, yeah. let's keep it going like yeah keep the blowtorch yeah absolutely absolutely now and 
you, you essentially, like you said, you, you came out kind of in stages. It, it wasn't like in one fell swoop. And there was this uh, nude photo shoot you did for Blue Magazine, which hinted but it wasn't explicit about your sexuality. And then uh, there was a couple of magazine articles later where it actually became official. But what are your memories about the reactions to particularly the Blue Magazine uh, photo shoot, I guess? Because this was released as you're going on a kangaroo tour in 1994. <laughs> and like I said, at this point... You Sorry, to... <laughs> I'm not laughing at you, John. I'm just like, laughing at your situation. Yeah, I know. And and <laughs> obviously, at this point, you're not you're not hiding your sexual identity any longer. <laughs> what what were the reactions of your fellow kangaroo tourists? Because it's one thing for this to happen during your regular season, when you, when you're somewhat cocooned with your regular club team, but here you are with a bunch of players you're not as familiar with who haven't come across this sort of thing before. So, how did they react? Can I tell you, like. I'm not saying everyone was happy and everyone was comfortable, but I like I got along with everyone on that too. I love yep. those guys. Like I have such a the comra- That's what I miss about rugby league: the camaraderie and the friendships. You know, my roommate on that tour was Terry Hill. Terry's mm. a friend of mine from, from way back. Terry's known I'm gay. Like he knew a long time mm. before I started playing grade that I was gay. So it was never an issue with Terry. Mm. That '94 tour was such a fantastic experience for me on so many different levels. It was almost like this coming of age for me, and mm. just like this this casting off of the shackles, and just like no. Guys, I, I mean, I when I went on that tour, I was adamant that I was going on that tour as a gay man. Yeah, you know what I mean, and to have a like a, a great time. And at first, you know, I have the most wonderful story on on those tours. Players, partners, and wives aren't allowed to stay with them when you're on tour. Mm-hmm. Right? That's just one of the rules. Anyway, Bobby Fulton was the coach. I got this phone call one day off of Bose. He says, "Robert, you need to come up and see me, mate. There's a bit of an issue." You don't normally get calls like that off players unless you're getting dropped from the team or, you, or, or you're getting sent home or something like that. And I, I just said, I hung up the phone. I said to Terry, I said, oh, I think, I don't know what's happened, but uh, Big Bose is about to sack me up. Because yeah. I, I was playing really good footy at the time. And anyway, I got up there, knock on the door, and calls out, come in, Robert. So I go in there, anyway, just sit down, and he starts pacing the room. Bose is pacing, and I'm like, fuck, what's happened? <laughs> like, fuck, what's going on? And I could tell, like, he was really uncomfortable. He said, Robbo says, uh, mate, uh, he says, you know, I don't care, mate, but he says, and my Shane was my partner, thinks his eagle, the, the eagle Shane was my <laughs> yeah. partner. Shane was over there on, on tour, watching the tour, right? But right. he wasn't staying with me, he was staying up the road. Yeah. And he just said to me, he said, uh, Robbo, he said, uh, mate, I don't care, but, but mate, Shane can't stay with you in the hotel, you know that, don't you? <laughs> I said, he's not, Bose, he's staying up the road. And he's like, oh, good, mate, no, no worries, no, good, that's what we need to hear, right? Going, oh, good, mate, off you go, it was still just one of those rare moments, you know what I mean? I could tell yeah. he was totally awkward with it, but it was one of those moments where he just totally embraces it. I just oh, I yeah. love him, like I just like oh, Bo, and I said to him, I stopped and said, Bose, I know you don't realise how what you just did, but that was so important to me. Yeah. Was so one, I just like thank you, Bose, thank you for just acknowledging, like thank you, thank that was on that '94 tour. It's one of those rare moments, you know. It's just like oh, that's what I mean about when people embrace things. It, yeah. it can be like quite powerful, it's like the you little know, things. Great French, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely make you so strong yeah. and make other people strong as well. Yeah. Okay, uh, rugby league question next. Now, it might seem jarring to people that I'm asking somewhat deep questions about your psyche as you're coming out to the world and then asking straightforward questions about rugby league, but this was your life. You know, one side, a typical story of a great rugby league career during a storied era, and the other where you're coming to grips with how you interact with the world. It's all happening simultaneously. So, you know, on that note, a rugby league question. 
what was it like playing on that kangaroo tour in 1994? Because this is when International Rugby League has got some serious momentum. Great Britain are serious challenges again. Uh, yeah. The British public is getting behind the lines. Wembley, Old Trafford, Ellen Road are the venues for the test matches. Three of the most famous grounds in the UK with big, passionate crowds. What are your memories from that tour? A tour that you played a huge part of. The two years leading up to that, 93, 94, I was probably playing the best football I'd ever played in my life. And I, I'm sure anyone who's listening to this who's been successful in any sport, I was playing with like supreme confidence. Mm. What I mean by that is like, I just knew every time I, I was playing, I was going to change the game. I was going to do something that could turn the game. But I was playing with this absolute form of confidence. Just mm. like, and I think anyone who plays in elite sport would understand what I'm talking about now. So going into that 94 tour, I, I was really confident. The game we played Wigan at Central Park, I can't describe it, but those moments when you're playing with that level of confidence, yeah. it is really a drug. It was a great tour. We lost the first test. We lost the first test because we were just so confident. All the lead-up games, until smashed every side we played, yeah. we'd already won the game before we ran out. So it was kind of a good wake-up call. For me personally, it was kind of like the pinnacle of my career. And the whole thing about also being totally at ease with who I was and being yeah. out on tour it was like it was it took it to a whole new level a whole different realm for me yeah fantastic yeah. so that's that's 1994 and in 1995 you're, you're out <laughs> publicly in 1995 now you're trying to win your first premiership at Manly meanwhile Super League is trying to fire up in the background or, or the foreground really what was it like being at the centre of the Super League drama because you go against the grain at Manly and decide you know what I'm not sticking with the ARL like the rest of you I'm signing for Super League 26 years on, how do you make sense of that period for the game? It wasn't a hard decision. I mean, I was signed on. My contract with Manly didn't finish to the end of 96. I never played in 96 because mm. cause I, I had a really good season in 95. We lost the grand final, which was still one of those. I mean, I've never been able to watch that grand final. I still can't watch that game now. Like, yeah. It's one of those rare things. It still makes me feel ever uncomfortable. Yeah. Half a dozen times I've, I've gone to put that game on, I still get sick. I can't wow. watch it. But anyway, that's beside the point. I'd actually signed, and I was fully obligated to honouring my contract with Manly. I decided mm. to play with Super League in 97. Mm-hmm. In, at the end of 95, after the grand final, the ARL, the then ARL, NRL, the then ARL announced that any Super League aligned players weren't going to be eligible to play in the, I think they were playing the English team that year. Oh the yeah, Bulls. the World Cup, wasn't it, 95? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they barred us. So I ended up, so much to my own detriment really, because I ended up sitting out 96 in protest. Mm. I took the ARL to court yeah. and all that. I mean, the bad thing, I mean, not the bad thing, I mean, it's great for Manly, but they did end up winning in 96, but to mm. me that was more about a principle thing. It's just like, oh, guys, I signed with you and I was going to play my best. You guys should honour the contract I signed with you as well. Yeah. That was kind of my interpretation of it. Yeah. And yeah. look, just on 95, and you touched on it just then, but the 95 grand final. Now, you mentioned that this still stings. Obviously, Manly were raging hot favourites, the best team in the competition that year. I'm curious why that memory still cuts deep for you because it seemed like throughout your career you were able to compartmentalise footy from the rest of your life quite well. So why does the sting still linger, do you think? I don't know. I, mean, I, just, I just I don't know. I just, the worst thing that could have happened for Manly that year is we, we played the Bulldogs in about, about three or four rounds out from the end of mm. the season. We played and we, we ended up beating them by about 30, 30 or 30, quite easily. Like, that was the worst thing that could have happened to us. Yeah. Like, 
because we'd already won that grand final before we ran on the t- like same thing as I'm talking about with that yeah. first test match in '94. It was the same situation. We'd already won that game, and they slapped their ass. Like they, they really did. They just it's kind of weird. It's one of those games. I st- I don't remember much of the game. Yeah, I just don't remember much of the game. I don't know if I blocked it out, but it was just one of those. Still makes. I'm even talking about it now. Yeah. I'm sickly, sickly feeling. <laughs> Well, let's move on then as quickly as possible. So following that in, in the couple of years after, you're now at the, the North Queensland Cowboys. You've made captain by the great Tim Sheens. That must have felt fantastic. Now, on, on coming out, so you're now a publicly gay figure. I'm curious what that felt like as a part of the gay community. How, how did the gay community, I know you don't love that term, but how did they react to your change in public status? Because obviously that community is not monolithic very different people made up of uh, very different opinions so what was that kind of experience like well, I thought it was fantastic that Tim made me club captain Tim Shearns and that, that was so the same embrace it was yeah. wonderful I mean it was it was nice recognition for me that the fact that Tim didn't have any prejudice yeah. in his decision it was just like fuck man we're, you know we are learning and, but he's a great guy too like he's a, yeah. like an incredible man as well in regards to the gay I mean I've always had a pretty good relationship with the gay community I think Mm. <laughs> I mean, I you know, I mean, I um, I'm patron for Pride in Sport, which has been wonderful. Maybe been doing that for a couple of years. I'm, yeah. I'm, I run an inclusion program out of the NRL. Basically, I'm, I'm still a regular at Almighty Graph parades. Um, mm. I'm not a club or a party person anymore. But I mean, but we still have a long way to go. That the LGBTIQ community still has a long way to go. Yeah, even within the NRL, they're still doing a lot of, uh, they just tick the box a lot of times. I, I mean, the best intentions, but there needs to be a lot of movement in, in a lot of areas. Yeah, instead of just ticking the box, I will do that. Yeah, it ticks that box, it ticks that box, it ticks that box. There needs to be a lot of yeah, on-the-ground work. Um, yeah, no, that, that's interesting yeah. you bring that up, Ian, because, you know, we, we did a show oh, maybe 18 months ago about the book Underdogs by Tony Hannon, which followed the Batley Bulldogs for a season and the UK yep. Championship, and that's the year that Keegan Hurst, as you know, came out that season, and it's a yep. fantastic book. And what's interesting is how generally positive the reaction was. You can count on one hand the negative comments or incidents that he copped. So obviously you played a huge part in that, in breaking down those barriers, but while yourself and Keegan are great role models for those who might be considering coming out, it remains a very rare occurrence to do so. And the fact that you're still the go-to guy for, for media when there's a story about homosexuality in, in male-dominated sports, that kind of speaks to that. So for Rugby League in Australia, the, there's been no one that I'm aware of that's come out while playing since yourself. And there also seems to be no no sort of gay subculture in Rugby League at the lower levels like there is in other sports, like Rugby Union where there's a gay World Cup, for ex- example, or, or they have the Sydney Convicts. convicts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what, why don't you think we see that in Rugby League? Uh, I just don't know. Mm. And I, I still think it's it's still predominantly that, that story was like there are definitely LGBTIQ people involved in rugby league playing the game, supporters. Mm, mm. But there's still this sensational lack of, of, of feeling of, of, of being safe or mm. being able to be who they truly are and, and, you know, like and, and bring their true self. There's still a lot of work to be. I mean, I just yeah. said about me being patient of Pride in Sport. Well, and there's an index, the Pride in Sport Index, and what the index is, is, is these recommendations that, that the Australian Human Commission and the Australian Sports Commission have put together about making a safe environment for LGBTIQ people within sporting clubs. This index that we ask clubs to fill out, and it's quite a bit of work, like, but it, it helps us, you know, Pride in Sport, to help the sport. Like, you know, the recommendations are to make their environment safer and more inclusive. Mm. 
you know, like at the moment, only it might be two now, but I don't know up until about two weeks ago, it was only one first grade club had completed the index. Like, this, the index yeah. has been available to them. You know, I mean, you get the types of things we need to be doing. Yeah. Like, this isn't about ticking boxes. This when okay, there's going to be a little bit of work involved. It's going to take someone probably three or four months to do this mm. index and complete. You know, if you want to, if you want to have an inclusive and safe environment, you need to do some work. You can't just tick boxes anymore. Yeah. We need to see you physically doing the work. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's what I mean. But I'm not being critical of the NRL either. I love the NRL. Yeah, absolutely. They are on the front foot. I mean, I run. You know, I'm part of a theatre sports group that, that we go around. And we have sessions with, with all the clubs, all the players. It's great, man. Like, it, it, and it's and it's always a learning experience. Mm. But there's still a big void there. There's still a grey area. I guess it's important for you know sports and clubs to. You might think like you're you're doing a great thing when you're probably just ticking a box. So it's probably worth just considering, is this just a tick box or is, are we actually doing something absolutely. substantial? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, Joe. Absolutely. Okay, Ian, earlier we spoke about your acting career and I remember reading an article a few years back, I think it was by Patrick Skeen, great writer, about how your acting career was at the crossroads because the cumulative effect of dozens and dozens of concussions and heavy knocks throughout your playing career had begun to seriously affect your brain and you were finding it hard to retain new information and remember your lines. What is the diagnosis for your brain and how does it play out on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I've been involved in a couple of those brain studies and parts of university studies as well now. I've definitely got a form of scarring on my brain. I've had the scans and all that done. When I started noticing my issue... When I was in the States, I lived in the States for four years. I've been back now from the States for about seven years. Mm. So, um, you know, you're looking at about 10 years ago. I just started noticing that I wasn't as sharp in my auditions and that I was forgetting lines or stuff that I, I was always confident going in auditions. I was just forgetting all that stuff that I, didn't, I just didn't feel confident about. Yeah. Then I got involved in some training when I came back to Australia. I mean, that's part of the reason I came back was to address that issue. Mm. Uh, yes, yeah, so, I mean, there's a whole other form of cognitive testing. And that, I mean, I'm much better now than I was 10 years ago. Um, but, I mean, I'm, you know, now I've just started to get some work again acting-wise, mm. so that's kind of good too. But, yeah, I mean, it's I have no absolutely no doubt that there's a... There's a payback system, you know, like when it comes to concussion, you you can't take those types of heavy knocks for such a long period of time and Mm. there'd be no consequence. Yeah, I absolutely believe that, mate. Yeah. And and I still, you know, there's there's still a lot of work in that area to be done too. A lot of of that stuff needs to be addressed. Um, You know, it needs to be, first and foremost, sports should be as safe as as it possibly can. I know the rules, we're still changing rules and and including new rules that prevent head clashes and, there still needs to be a lot of work in that, in that area, mate. Yeah. yeah. What, what were the attitudes towards concussion back in your playing days? The, the book outlines <sighs> the weekend where you played two grand finals in two consecutive days, getting knocked out in both, but also winning the man of the match in both. You know, incredible stuff. I understand we didn't have the research into the long-term effects of repeated head knocks back then, but was there any discussion anywhere that it could be a problem later in life? The old rule was you know, the, the trainer would run on and hit you in the back of the head with a, with a wet sponge. <laughs> and if you and if you remember the trainer's name, you're right to go. You know, what I mean? it was kind of like that. It was like it was Sorry a bit of a bet. So it is ridiculous, mate. It is that funny. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. I absolutely agree. They're just like, I, God, I can't believe this is the way we used to. It's almost like a badge. And I got knocked out last week. You know, like, well, like, hey, how many fingers am I holding up? I said, oh, you're holding up now. 
fingers hurt, you know, like, but, but I mean, it used to be like a bad job, like, there's still a lot of work needs to be done in that space as well, you like, just with the testing and that, you see what happened a couple of years ago in the state of origin, that was, oh, that was so uncomfortable watching, mm. you know, the, the uh, Sam Burgess thing in the grand, in the South Grand Final, oh, yeah. and, all, and all that type of thing, like, oh, like, that stuff is, is quite difficult to watch, for me, that's quite difficult yeah. to watch now, so, you know, there's still a lot of work that needs to be addressed, yeah, yeah but there is definitely, without doubt, there is definitely a payback system is yeah. long-term. There are long-term effects. Now, Ian, a very tricky hypothetical, and it's an unfair question, so you have every right to bat it back. So feel free to. But do you think you would have kept down the rugby league path and taken it all the way if you had the knowledge about the effects of repeated head knocks back then that we do now? Oh, that's a really true. I mean, knowing what I know right now and the effects of the way... I mean, I had a... I glossed over it, mate, earlier when we spoke about my situation over in the States. I had two episodes in the States where I lost time. I quite mm. literally, one moment I was driving a car, the next moment I was at home in my unit. Yeah. I mean, and I lost about 15 minutes, and there was another time I was making a meal, and the next moment I was on the bed, and I'd lost about half an hour. Yeah. So that's what really, I came home after, that's what I got quite worried. So, mm. I mean, if I sounded like I was glossing over, I yeah. uh, would apologise for that, mate. It was, Not at all. It was quite, quite life changing for me. Yeah. It was a real moment in my life. Knowing what I know now, when hearing you ask that question, yeah, you know, I. I can understand why a younger Ian Roberts would say, no, I'm not going to go down this path. Mm. I just... Um, it's yeah. it's an unfair question, really, because... No, no, it's, no, it's, it's, it's totally yeah. justified. No, I mean, I get it. But I think, I mean, what if, what if, yeah, what yeah, if, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what do you think rugby league looks like in 50 years? Is it the same sport but played by people who have signed their lives away? Or is it much more athletically rather than confrontationally focused, kind of closer to tag rugby league? Um, that's a great question. I mean, that's a question that, that many people are grappling with at the moment, I should imagine. Yeah. I just don't know, mate. Yeah. I mean, uh, the game has just, when I started uh, to now, the game has changed incredibly. You know, like, it, the game's a lot faster. There's a lot more athletes playing the game. I don't believe the game has the one-on-one confrontations it used to have but for those reasons those exact reasons what we're talking about because yeah. the rules have been changed and they're trying to prevent as many head knocks and, and that type of situation yeah as possible but you know it, it still comes back it's, it's a contact sport yeah you know, like it, it really is but when you got you got two men or you got, you got two people not men now but women as well like you, you got two people running into each other you know it's um yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was quite bracing to hear James Graham speak the other week, sort of saying that he kind of justified it to himself by saying, okay, well, I'm making an informed decision, and he decided that you've got to kind of be willing to die for the sport, which, uh, wow, that was really a bracing thing to hear. Uh, which... yeah, I'm glad you used the term bracing. Yeah, I was really quite shocked. I'm just like, wow, die for the sport. I'm just like, that's, uh, that's a level I never got to then, mate. You know yeah. what I mean? I, I just... I, I can honestly say I, I'm, I've never been prepared to die for the sport, for sport, no. Yep. Because that, to me, that, that, that's not sport. Do you get what I'm saying? Yes. It's like, yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, I mean, it, was, oh, it, it makes me uncomfortable even talking about that. Yeah, no. When I, when, I, when I heard that conversation, it's like, wow, okay, that's a perspective I had not expected to hear. Mm. Look, Ian, we've, we've covered a lot of terrain. Just a, a couple more quick questions, if, if I may. A couple of quick footy questions to finish up. The, the usual cliche stuff, but I want to know. Uh, so you mentioned it earlier, but the best player you played with is Ellery Hanley. What about the best player you played against? Oof. Oof. Oh, well, I would, I would, I 
did say Ellery Hanley because when I was playing in South, he, uh, of he course, had, uh, very good. Yeah, he, he had played for uh, Balmain and mm. then, he, then he had a season at West. Do you remember, I don't know if this name rings a bell, but used to, South used to have a, he was a second row centre. His name was Paul Roberts. He was a okay. lanky guy, incredibly fast, played either second row or centre. Anyway, I'll never forget because Ellery used to have that nickname, the Black Pearl, remember that? Mm-hmm, remember mm-hmm. South were playing West when, when Ellery was playing for West. And there'd been all this hype about Ellery and the Black Pearl and how good he was going. And, and, and Paul is a, Paul Roberts is, a, is an Aboriginal guy. And I'll never forget, Ellery made a break up the sideline and, and uh, Paulie came across in cover and just literally wiped him out. Like, he really knocked him. Like, he hit him out, like, wiped him out, and Ellery was down hurt. I'll never forget it because Paulie Roberts stood over the top of him and he says, now you've met the black snake. I'll never forget it was the funniest thing, ever, one of the funniest, most grand moments. <laughs> All right, so... But, but Ellery, like, he was just, he was a freak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fantastic. Toughest one-on-one opponent. That is difficult. In my first season at Manly, when we played South, Mark Carroll mm. broke my jaw and my cheekbone. My goodness. Well, he knocked me out, obviously, I got carried off. But watching the video, Spud and, and Les Davison were probably, probably the two of the toughest blokes ever played against. Yeah. Spud, Spud being Mark Carroll, sorry. Of course, um, yeah. Later, your teammate at Manly. Yeah, and uh, and David Gillespie, too. I'll never forget, there was a, we played, when I was playing for South, we played Canterbury. We played the SCG, that's how long ago it was, must have been like 87, mm. I suppose. It was, it was the Anzac Day game, and South used to play Canterbury on, on Anzac Day. The SCG was a beautiful day, it was like 30 degrees, it, was, it wasn't a cloud in the sky, and I, I've only seen the video because I don't remember the game, mm. but carried off again. But David Gillespie came off my blind side and like almost cut me in half. And um, But all I remember is I remember waking up on the ground and Laurie, which was our um, our trainer, was hitting me in the head with the sponge, with the wet sponge. And I sat up and I just looked at what Laurie and I said, oh, I said, Jesus, it's a beautiful day, isn't it, Laurie? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, get him off. He's like, wait a day, get him off, get him off. Yeah. It is astonishing that you've played so many games of uh, first grade rugby league considering all the uh, injuries and the concussions you had. Honestly, like it's, it's quite an yeah. astonishing uh, achievement. Um, Ian, happiest rugby league moment? Not, not so much playing the game, but the happiest moment was that with that story I spoke to about a bit earlier about Bozo yeah. on the 94 nice. tour, mate. That was like one of those rare moments, just like, oh. I can be me now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 What about most vivid state of origin memory? MG, Mark Guyer and yeah. uh, Wally Lewis, that game when they button heads and that, and that uh, was it 91 at the, um, at the, at the stadium and it was like pouring down ropes. That game, that, that's probably the, the most vivid memory of, of the origin. That was uh, that was quite a moment. Do you remember what it was like in the tunnel at half time in the change rooms trying to calm MG down or something? Oh, no, well, it wasn't just MG. I think, I think like, like, it was almost like the whole team was like, had been revved up. Yeah, that kind of spilled out. Yeah, you know, like it spilled out in the rest of the game. It like it, you know, it really stoked the fire. Like yeah. it, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, he was such he was such a good player. Well, like, like I just you just talk about well, like, he just had that incredible um, ability. He used to lift a team around. Yeah. Him. yeah. Well, we could do another show on your uh, origin experiences, but uh, we we have run out of time. Ian Roberts. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your insights and helping us remember and understand your experience and also giving us a glimpse into a storied rugby league career. In many people's minds, through your actions and your ongoing advocacy, you remain as colossal off the field as you ever were on it, and you are goddamn colossal on it. So yeah, you're clearly a soulful human being, and rugby league is so lucky 
that you stumbled upon our game all those years ago. So, Ian Roberts, on behalf of the Rugby League community, thank you. Good luck in the future, and thanks so much for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. My absolute pleasure, John. Thank you very much, mate. Progressive Rugby League. Just so much to talk about. Okay, thanks as always for coming along for the ride, ladies and gentlemen. Until we next cross paths somewhere over the Rugby League rainbow. Rugby League hobby. And see ya.